This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Have you ever wondered what it's like to bite into nerds' gummy clusters? They're fruity. They're tangy. They're gummy. And they're crunchy. Nerds Gummy Clusters, a union of fruity sweet gummy and tangy crunchy nerds. Unleash your senses. Shop now at nerdscandy.com. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. You're listening to the Science Focus podcast from the BBC Science Focus magazine team. We're the UK's best-selling science and technology monthly, available in print and in several digital formats throughout the world. Find out more at sciencefocus.com or look out for us in your app store. Hello and welcome to the Science Focus podcast. I'm Amy Barrett, Editorial Assistant at BBC Science Focus magazine. Many of us have had a one-to-one interaction with artificial intelligence, whether that's through an automated chat service for customer service or trying our hand at beating an AI built to play chess. But these experiences aren't flawless and they're not as smooth as our interactions with other human beings. One researcher trying to improve the language abilities of AI is Lara Martin, a Computing Innovation Fellow and a postdoc at the University of Pennsylvania. More specifically, Lara is trying to teach AI to tell stories. I'm really pleased to be joined by her today, and I believe you have an AI-generated story to share with us. Yes, I have a story here, uh, and I think what's good about this story is it kind of shows the the strengths and the weaknesses of the system that I built for um, my PhD. So it goes like this. Christopher attacks Harriet. The king tries to take him away. Christopher is taken away, but is quickly saved by Agner. The king is able to escape the tower. Christopher and Christopher are able to get Christopher out of the tower, where the tower is still on the king. Penelope and the king are able to save Christopher. So... What's interesting about this story is that um, it's starting to make uh, causal and coherent sense until it reaches a point where it just spits out garbage. <laughs> um, so there's um, the, it's so the way that I've been doing my work is I'm trying to combine um, 
neural network output. So um, like GPT, there's these really large language models that people use for a lot of natural language generation work. Um, and I combine that with uh, more um, classic AI symbolic methods. And so um, here I am trying to make the, the story, I'm fighting with GPT to make it more coherent, um, but there's still, <laughs> there's still work to be done um, uh, with the Christopher and Christopher sentence. <laughs> things just, my parser just breaks. <laughs> and, um, and so it's, uh, uh, it's a work in progress, but that's what research is. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we should really be impressed by hearing that story, shouldn't we? Because, you know, it's, it's one thing to hear it with the frame of reference of all these amazing stories that come out of humans. But for AI, this is kind of really novel, isn't it? Right. So what's interesting about having... A, an AI tell stories is that if you think about what you're feeding in uh, an AI or so all, there's, I don't know how familiar everyone is with neural networks, but neural networks are, um, are a way of having the, the computer generalize over a large amount of data. So they learn to pick up these patterns over time. And the way people do do this so like what I mentioned GPT GPT is where they took this massive amount of data like they're like it's um just what <laughs> what we didn't think was possible a couple years back um and just crammed it into one neural network and the neural network just learned patterns of these of this data um and so I take that and I tweak it a bit to, uh, so that it learns to tell, um, like I have a corpus of science fiction stories. So I'm, I like kind of retrained it or they call fine, fine tuning it uh, to, um, to tell science fiction stories. But going back to what you, what you said, what's, what's interesting is that um, the, so now the AI has this great like idea of what a story is, but that doesn't give it any idea of what it's like in the real world. So uh, there's this thing called the principle of minimal departure by Mary Laurie Ryan. Uh, and I love this because it really sums up this idea that when you tell a fictional story, you, try to match it as as uh, like close as possible to the real world. So when I, even when you're listening to a story, you make assumptions that it's going to be as close as possible to the real world. So I don't have to reintroduce gravity every time I tell a new story. That's going to be an assumption you make. I think in the book, she, she uh, talks about how um, like Don Quixote, uh, doesn't have to talk about how to uh, use currency and <laughs> waste time with with that um, because these are just cultural or physical assumptions that we make. Um, and so therefore they're not in the stories. Mm. And, and that makes um, 
that makes training these neural networks really difficult. Because the neural networks aren't able to understand what is and what isn't needed for a story? Well, it's that, so they end up learning um, kind of temporal relations, like, um, but that can mean anything. It could mean like, I have to load the gun before I shoot it, or it could mean uh, uh, like Susan jumped up and down and then Evan flew to Paris. Like it, it's so like, maybe that's, that's a thing that happens, <laughs> maybe. But um, uh, so it's, it's learning these, it's learning what sequences happen across time, but that doesn't mean that it's like cause and effect. Um, and so uh, what I do is I kind of uh, inject that into these systems to guide the, <laughs> guide the generation and have it make more sense. So we know that, you know, AI are capable of, you know, playing specific games that we've told it to or, or, or following kind of instructions. Um, but why is it important for AI to be able to tell stories and convincing stories? Yeah. So, well, I mean, I, I kind of like to think of a world where um, imagine you have this, the, instead of using like a keyboard and mouse, maybe your interface is talking to the, the computer, like kind of like Alexa. Ah. Never mind. <laughs> He's listening to you right now. <laughs> Apologies if any listeners have any kind of Amazon technology there. <laughs> Oh, I, I turned mine off, so hopefully it turned off for everyone else. Um, <laughs> but imagine having like a, a full-blown conversation with her or saying, like you could tell a story like, okay, so I need to plan a birthday party. Well, um, uh, in this birth in my birthday party, I'm going to have these wonderful balloons and then all the guests will arrive. And then, so you're telling this, you, it's like, all, almost all conversations and all types of talking that we do is actually kind of telling a story. Um, uh, so it it makes um, I, I think it would really improve the the um, our interface our interfacing with the computer if we were able to tell stories with it um, or add it. <laughs> <laughs> So it needs to be able to both understand when, what we mean when we tell a story and also tell a story back. Yeah, so um, you know, telling a story back is, a, is another step. So, um, part, so when I do story generation, it is doing story understanding and then, um, well, it's kind of bulk story understanding and then, um, and then it uh, tells it generates its own story and being able to generate its own story is, is just like okay did you understand me are you are you on the are you on the same page as me um will, will you plan this birthday party the way I asked you to um and uh but I think like in the more recent or in the most in the closer future, uh, I think that it would be really great to see systems that um, like 
that will like that train you in certain scenarios um or uh if you have writer's block and you uh, it's actually a lot of people are working on this um where uh maybe you stop for a while and the system gives you prompts and how um how relevant are those prompts and does the user use them and how do they use them, things like that. And so there's different, um, there's different ways that stories can be used that people don't realize, um, partly because we are telling stories all the time. So it is kind of fundamental to what it is to be kind of human within our relationships. Yeah, um, I often start out my, my talks uh, with like where we've like learned to tell stories before we could write I mean this is part of our human nature and um it's not easy <laughs> uh it like for a computer to learn how to tell stories or learn how to understand stories it needs to know all this other basic information as well like that's why a lot of natural language processing um, which includes like um, linguistic information uh, is necessary in order to build up systems like this. So are there certain rules that go along with certain stories? Are there, are there kind of basic patterns that you can teach the AI? Um, yeah, so there's, um, going back to, well, there's a couple of ways to uh, teach the AI certain patterns. Um, some of which is like going back to what I said about inserting symbolic methods, which meaning that, so when I say symbolic, I mean like, like um, feeding in the, to the system, these um, like discrete tags. So I, instead of saying um, dog is this like, string of numbers it is i'm just using the word dog and this is what i'm keeping feeding into the computer and the computer does not understand this but it can operate on it because i i am uh, i gave it these rules to operate on it so if you see a dog then uh get a treat <laughs> so um so there's been work by um nanyang peng who is now at ucla um, and she has looked at having these keywords. So a user enters in a um, sequential keyword. So like uh, eat, leave, uh, drive or something. And um, the system will create a story like using these keywords and having like each sentence contain the words in order. Um, so it becomes like, uh, uh, Charlie, Charlie ate his breakfast and he left his house and drove to work. Um, and so, uh, that, that work is actually done mostly just with neural networks and there's stuff with, um, on the more symbolic side, um, where, um, it, you can have a lot of control over the types of stories that you're generating um, because the, these systems are basically hand engineered. Um, 
And so you're, instead of having just this data that you're, that who knows what the model is learning from it, you're actually just, um, you're actually just creating these like nodes. There are these like plot points of the story. And then you have another system that will plan um, paths across these plot points to create a story. Um, and that, that is, um, that type of symbolic story generation has been uh, going on since at least the 70s. Um, this neural, these neural techniques are more, uh, more modern and, um, uh, and yeah, I, not a lot of people have uh, worked on the neural story generation until about 2018 or so. So it's a very kind of, uh, it's a research in its infancy. Right. Um, what's interesting is that, like you said, like there's, these systems used to have a lot of control. We used to have a lot of control over them. <laughs> and so we knew what types of stories they're making. And now we're diving into this other end where uh, who knows what, who, I mean, maybe we don't even know what data it's feeding in. This is actually a big problem um, that, is across all of artificial intelligence where we have this huge amount of data and there could be like racist, sexist, like all kinds of garbage in this data that we just don't know is there because it's so huge. Um, and we're just training on it. And so we, we end up uh, having these systems that <laughs> it's, it's like a, like gambling, <laughs> trying to see what, what it outputs. So where does the data come from? Um, it comes from a variety of sources. So I have, personally, I have scraped, like for my science fiction data set, I scraped from um, uh, fan wikis because science fiction TV show nerds are very thorough with their plot <laughs> summaries. And so... That was a great source of data, um, but people have been like scraping all of the internet basically to create these data sets and the internet can be a pretty toxic place. Yeah, gosh, it's scary to think that the fate of artificial intelligence could potentially lie in the hands of the people on the internet. Yeah, um, there was actually a pretty big disaster that Microsoft had a few years back um, where they had a Twitter bot learn from the interactions that she had on Twitter and she quickly became a Nazi <laughs> and it was not good. <laughs> um, so yeah, and they took that down very quickly, but it, it like, it made a ripple and um, and things like this keep popping up and uh, I even though I don't research bias in data in particular I like to be informed about it and try to be careful about what data I'm using hmm. so there is a responsibility on your end absolutely and I think all AI researchers should have this or do have this responsibility, whether or not they 
uh, work towards making things better. So for the system that you've built, what would you say is kind of the ultimate test for this kind of thing? Is there something that's like the Turing test that you can do? Okay, yeah. Um, So yeah, I think that Dungeons and Dragons would be a really great, it's not, I I wouldn't call it a Turing test. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's because... Uh, yeah it's but it's it's like um it it would really show how open-ended and flexible and useful these types of systems can be um because if you just think about the the types of things that you do when you play these games is pretty remarkable like you're not just telling a story, but you're telling a story with like three or four other people. And um, and if you're the dungeon master, um, it's a, it might even be a, like a, a harder task. I think it is kind of a harder task because you're creating a whole world and you have to relay this information onto other people to make, to allow them to create a um a theory like a theory of of this fictional world that you're trying to share um and so it's there's a lot of theory of mind going on so trying to see are are you on the same page do i understand what you think the world is like um there's uh a lot of intrinsic reward. So uh, unlike playing Go, for instance, which has an extrinsic reward, um, which says that like, if you do this, I actually don't know how to play Go. So <laughs> <laughs> if, you, if you do this and this, you get points for that and stuff. <laughs> and maybe I'll, I'll stick to the Atari games because they've done that. <laughs> so like, if you shoot, shoot all the like uh, aliens in, invader game then uh you get points for each alien that you kill and um then you have this like extrinsic extrinsic uh reward that you get at the end that's like very clear like you can't debate that um whereas if you have an intrinsic reward it's like well maybe my character will get a maybe my character will will get um a reward for or like feel good about um taking care of this orphan that we run across um and that's not something that you can necessarily like build into the system it's something that um it it's something that's both kind of personal and also like uh personal to the character mm-hmm. um so it's yeah, and there, there's just like a, a ton of these challenges that we haven't even begun to look at. Uh, it's it's pretty pretty remarkable. <laughs> Do you think it's something that you know you and I could see in our lifetimes, an actual AI dungeon master? Um. Well, I mean, there is the uh, AI dungeon, <laughs> but 
to ha- to actually see like something that acts like a human or and there's like different levels of 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 being a dungeon master maybe someone's good dungeon master and someone's a poor dungeon master so to see a good dungeon master ai in our lifetime i think um i don't know i'm i'm a little skeptical that it'll happen yeah and can can an ai ever be creative with what you've given it or is it just going to kind of rehash the things that you've you've told it can it actually come up with new ideas so yeah computational creativity is a really fascinating field in general um because it it, there's just so many kind of philosophical questions that we don't know how to answer like um if it creates something that's brand new so like there's this idea of there's different types of creativity there's um personal creativity so maybe i like if like a two-year-old drops something on the ground and they uh discovered that their their cup uh reacts to gravity in this way so that's like personally creative um but uh historically creative is a lot more complicated because you have to compete basically with the rest of the population um and so if an ai ai comes up with something that's like historically creative or at least like new and interesting and um then it, it brings up the questions like, well, was that the AI's work or was that the work of the, the developer that created it, the researcher that created it? Um, because there, there's, um, there's like every agent that you make, you're putting your imprint on it, whether you like it or not. Um, and um, the more uh, the more on the like rule based symbolic side you head towards, the more of your imprint is into this agent. So to say that, like, can an agent uh, come up with something that's creative by itself is a tricky question. Um, I mean, the, if it's like purely by itself, like quote unquote, (laughs) um, it's, it, it might just be like, it did something completely random. And in that case, it wasn't intentional, you know, and it's, is that creative then? (laughs) There's just a lot of philosophical questions here that are, yeah, just open-ended. And I'm not a philosopher, so. <laughs> and of course, there's the ethics side of it as well. Like, there's a kind of a lot. This is really a new like, you know, route for exploration. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And what's the kind of most surprising thing that is thrown up for you? There's been some pretty interesting things that these my systems have come up with over the years. Um, like... The, one of my early systems uh, had a story about um, like a horse becoming a lawn chair entrepreneur. And I just think that that concept is really 
really interesting when I think about that every now and then. Um, and, and so there, there's these really like quirky, funny things that they come up with. Um, but like in that system, for instance, that was random. Like I had, well, it was partially random. Like I had um, these tags that said like, okay, I need an agent, um, some kind of job maybe and something. And so it filled in, but then I was, it was pretty early on. So I just had, uh, it filled things in randomly. Um, and it just happened to come up with this, this interesting concept. Um, but most of the other times it would come up with these weird things that like, I don't even know what, like a really specific type of flower or something like, uh, because it would just pull this from the database it had. Um, and so it might be, it, it's, it, it's kind of, um, it's not as, it's not as surprising when you can't understand it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I can definitely see kind of a AI Terry Pratchett style thing happening in the future with a horse who sells lawn chairs. It's amazing. <laughs> Do you think that this kind of, um, I mean, we're, we're talking way into the future, so this is probably kind of speculative fiction right now, but will, um, you know, art and storytelling be the next big frontier that, that sees an AI boom? Are we going to see AI books, pub, you know, AI publishers on the shelves, or are we going to see an Oscar-winning AI in the future? Uh, well, <laughs> I, I think it would be great to, to see AI being like creative AI, um, being made. I am not as like having, having like an Oscar winning AI, I think is not not as great um because it's <laughs> i i i think that like it, it goes into that problem it's like who who um has the ownership mm -hmm. of this like is it the ai's uh like uh did the ai win the award or was it the people that created it or was it the the data that it was trained on like the people who created that data like it's there's a lot of weirdness there and the the computer is not a living thing and I think that it's really important for people to uh to realize that computers are not as smart as they think they are because it's it they're they're not they're not people they're not they don't have agency they're just tools that um, other people have used to work on these things. Mm -hmm. And so I think the best use of computational creativity or creative AI is co-creativity and um, using it as a tool to augment human creativity. Um, because computers are really good at, at looking through large, large spaces of data so they can come up with things that you've never seen before, never thought of, um, connected with this. Um, 
But humans are really good at making those connections, connecting uh, ideas that um, that the computer might present to them. So, um, like it the, for the going back to the example of the horse being the lawn chair entrepreneur, like the computer knows nothing about what that means. It's just spinning out stuff. Um, but having a human um, take that and like run with it maybe they go and make a story about this horse like that'd be fantastic like this is a this is a really interesting idea um and humans have that ability to um connect these things and i think that i think that's a really good uh uh symbiotic relationship that needs to be used more yeah i guess i've never really thought of it that way but they're kind of tools and aids to our own creativity as opposed to having their own agency yeah um for you what's kind of the most exciting thing about your research is it where it could go or some particular use or it's interesting because I am very proud of the work that I've done during my PhD, but it is not the work that I wanted to do when I started my PhD. Um, so I started, I came into the program wanting to add speech and, and like spoken technologies to something cool. And I came across um, Mark Riddell's work on storytelling. And I thought that would be really really great. And then I realized, oh, this is not ready for speech. And, um, and well, maybe it was more like Mark was, Mark told me that uh, this, <laughs> we're not quite ready for speech yet. And, um, but, but now that I'm done, um, it kind of opens the door at, to all these different possibilities of what can I do with, with just computational creativity and um, both like language understanding and speech technologies because because in speech um, there's this thing called prosody which is basically all of the extra information that you convey to someone in addition to the words so it's like the intonation and the the like the melody um, the the timing and and a lot of times this has meaning behind it because um, people talk in a particular way or you can be, you can sound sarcastic and you don't pick that up on, in text. And so um, I think, I think that's really fascinating. And I think that um, there can be a lot of work there too. I mean, there is a lot of work going on uh, in speech technologies, but um, yeah, I think that all these, all these things are really interesting and um, I'm very, very curious um, <laughs> to see where where my career takes me. <laughs> and that sort of thing, you can see kind of the benefit of well, doing this research from an kind of AI perspective will actually help us as humans, like for people who maybe struggle with understanding intonations or, you know. right. Right. Um, yeah, I, I tend to, I consider myself a cognitive scientist. And so that includes like artificial intelligence and linguistics. Um, Cause I, I did 
linguistics in my bachelor's degree um, in addition to computer science and I kind of combined the two and um, and then and there's other things in cognitive science like philosophy and psychology and it's a very humanistic way of thinking of science and I think um, it's I, I think that um, by looking at AI through a cognitive science lens um, really puts more of the focus on the human. And so, yeah, you can make more, um, more tools that either act like a human or, or you use what you learn about humans <laughs> to make better AI to work with humans. <laughs> That was Lara Martin from the University of Pennsylvania talking about her research teaching AI to tell stories. If you've enjoyed listening to this episode of the Science Focus podcast, please do leave us a review and check out the February issue of BBC Science Focus magazine, which is out now. In this issue, we explore how your brain creates reality. We look into the baffling science of dark boson stars and, as always, our panel of experts answer your questions. Of course, there's much more inside and on sciencefocus.com. Thank you for listening to the Science Focus podcast from the BBC Science Focus magazine team. We're the UK's best-selling science and technology monthly, available in print and in several digital formats throughout the world. Find out more at sciencefocus.com or look out for us in your app store.